Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and this is the Downtime Podcast, where we're going to be taking you deeper than ever into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode is supported by We Are One Composites and they've got an even more generous offer than normal for you. For the month of November, you can get 20% off their convergence rims and wheel sets. If you've listened to the podcast regularly, you'll know that I love We Are One wheels. For many years now, I've been using them and benefiting from their incredible robustness and great ride feel that strikes a balance between compliance and stiffness to give you a ride that's direct but not harsh. With the convergence rims, We Are One have taken everything up a level by implementing the latest engineering knowledge surrounding carbon fibre. For example, they've increased impact strength by 32% while still retaining that awesome We Are One ride feel. This year we've been using the convergence rims on our team downhill bikes, so that's six wheels all year that have had zero issues and remain tight and true all season long. Downtime listeners get an extra special 20% off for the month of November by using the code DOWNTIMENOVEMBER2023 at the checkout over on weareonecomposites.com. That's downtime with a capital D, November with a capital N, and the number 2023 with no spaces over at weareonecomposites.com. Before we jump into the episode, just a few quick things to mention. Firstly, if you want to support the podcast, then you can either set up a donation via my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash downtime podcast, or grab yourself some merch from downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop, or just share the episodes with your friends or on your social media and spread the word. It really helps and I massively appreciate everyone that does it. To get a little more downtime in your life, you can join my newsletter, where I'll provide you with a bit of behind-the-scenes info on the podcast, interesting bits and pieces from around the mountain bike world, some mini-reviews of products that I've been using and like, partner offers, and more. You can do that over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash newsletter. Also, don't forget to follow the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. You can do that by hitting that button in your podcast app now, or there's buttons for all the major platforms over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. Finally, you can either listen to today's episode right here, or if you prefer to watch it, you can now do that over on my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash at downtime podcast. All right, today I'm joined by Nico Malali to talk all things frameworks. With a limited batch of 100 of the bikes going on sale tomorrow, Nico and I sat down for an in-depth chat about the project. You'll hear how Nico has taken his experience from racing and translated that into designing and developing the Frameworks downhill bike. Hear who was involved to make this dream a reality. How much will the bikes cost? What specs will be available? How do you get hold of one? And heaps of your listener questions too. This is a great chance to immerse yourself in two hours of one of the most exciting projects in mountain biking right now. So without further ado, here's Nico Malala. Nico Malali, welcome back to the Downtime Podcast, man. It's uh, it's been a couple of weeks since the end of the season, but no doubt you've been a busy man. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. Uh, excited to talk about something a little different than racing, like we normally do. Yeah, definitely, man. Yeah, let's let's talk frameworks. It has been a while since we've had a chat, at least on the podcast, anyway, about frameworks. We've had a few uh, at the side of World Cup tracks over the last year or so, but. Before we like get into where you're at with frameworks now, let's kind of wind it back a bit and give a bit of background. Like what, where did the seed come from? What, and what did you set out to achieve initially? Like I'm kind of guessing from everything I know anyway, that you didn't expect to be on the verge of going into production like you are right now. Yeah, I, uh, I definitely didn't start this to sell anything. That's for sure. That was actually like drivers and constraints in previous, uh, I guess, brands that I rode for that made me want to only make the best bike and not uh, have any other factors at play. So, um, yeah, I definitely just started it out of, I guess, just 
being super interested. Like I had done prototype bikes with other teams that I raced for, um, gone through the process of figuring out what worked best for me. And I kind of had some ideas that I wanted to try that weren't necessarily in line with, um, and I didn't even know if they would work, to be honest. I just wanted to try them out, wanted to kind of like go down this route of experimenting with things. And um, I know sometimes that can be expensive and not directly in line with um, like the goal of ending on a production bike and being able to arrive at like a, a product that fits into someone's line. So I just, um, yeah, I just wanted to try to, you know, test some things out that I had on my mind and make a bike that was exactly what I thought I wanted. And it, it, it was pretty good on the first try, but has taken a, a ton of refinement to kind of strike the perfect balance that I, that I was looking for. Um, but yeah, I guess that's, that's where it all started from. Yeah. So free yourself up from all of those constraints that every brand experiences right whether it's like adhering to a silhouette or using a particular style of linkage that everyone knows them for there's always something that holds you back i guess from going for like maybe the ultimate performance solution so you've managed to like unshackle yourself from those chains and i guess the first step of the process is to choose a suspension system right a layout um and you i think downloaded a copy of linkage and went pretty deep and started tinkering and playing like where how did you get from starting to learn how to use that software because obviously you had a feel i guess for the sort of things you wanted anyway from all the work you've done with brands and race teams over the years but how do you get from downloading a bit of software to ending up with like the four bar system and the the numbers that you have settled on yeah, I guess um, maybe real engineers would laugh at using Linkage, <laughs> but it, it's a uh, it's a nice little two D program that's like super easy for somebody who doesn't have a uh, background in three D modeling. Um, that's using more powerful programs. It, it's a nice way to like quickly check things, quickly change things, and you can prove concepts in Linkage. Like if you can, you can get something to work in Linkage. It might not be you can't really download that file and then like upload it to Creo or SolidWorks and expect that it's going to be exactly the same thing. But if the concept works, then normally it proves that you can find something that's along those same lines. So I downloaded Linkage as, um, I guess we were working on like the last couple refinements to the intense bike when I was racing for them in 2021 and just struggling with, uh, trying to equate the feel that we were looking for into the design that they had. And I, I don't know, I, I always like the opportunity to work on something myself. Cause I can, like when you go back and forth with somebody, you can only ask so many times to them to change it. <laughs> like I start to feel bad and I kind of wanted to like figure out for myself what more, what I was looking for as well. Um, so I started messing around with that program and I quickly found that the, the numbers that I was looking for out of the bike, all the kinematics outputs were pretty easy to achieve with a four bar rocker link, um, layout. And I guess those numbers came from other bikes that I had test ridden in the past, whether it was teams that I raced for or, uh, right before starting this project and kind of at the end of intense with intense they were looking to refine their bike and aaron had a 
I think four bikes to ride of, I think we had a specialized common saw, um, a Trek, and then I had a couple bikes that I was riding myself too, to just kind of just interested, just curious, um, just riding it during the week, seeing how they felt and would try to draw some conclusions for the numbers that I was looking for out of those bikes. And, um, that's what led me to, to make my frame with the four bar design. I, I wasn't really set on what design I wanted. I was more set on the numbers that I was looking for. And this was the easiest way for, for me to find that. It's like, um, main line with confidence sort of thing, <laughs> like as a proven tried and true design. And it's yeah. kind of like the s- simplest way to get, um, a, a really well performing bike. And in saying that it's, it, I think it, a, a four bar design sits somewhere in the middle. And as far as complexity goes, there's definitely more complex layouts with shorter links with, um, six bar suspension systems. And then there's simpler designs that use a single pivot or a single pivot with a linkage. Um, so I think the four bar sits really nicely in the middle of the complexity, but it uses the, the kind of layout of the frame, at least the rocker link version really efficiently where you're not having a lot of extra material. You're not needing to fit things in places where they don't naturally fit and forces, um, are well spread throughout the frame and mm-hmm. into places where there's already the, the bike's already strong, like, um, yeah. the shock bottoming out into the bottom bracket. It's already pretty strong down there. So yeah. it lends itself well to it. And I mean, I didn't care what it looked like. I couldn't, I couldn't see it <laughs> while I was riding it. I just wanted it to ride the way I wanted to. And that's kind of what landed me on choosing that layout, I guess. Yeah. How would you summarize then the sort of the kinematic and dynamic characteristics of the bike that you've ended up with like what was it that you were trying to achieve if you were going to put that into words rather than a set of like numbers and graphs i guess simply put uh balanced and predictable Mm -hmm. um a bike that does what you expect is much better than one that does something exceptionally well and other things you don't expect so i've i kind of learned that whether other people's marketing says so or not, every time you make one thing really exceptional, you're compromising another thing and you have to find the right balance of all these um, kinematics to get the bike and and geometry to get the bike to ride the way you want it to. Um, And for me, making a downhill race bike, um, being really predictable was probably the number one goal. And then, I found that being balanced front to rear helps to create that predictable bike and giving the right balance of support to where you're preserving the geometry and the geometry is kind of where you expect it to be. It's not unbalanced from front to rear because in in that situation, then the geometry is not what you intended it to be and the bike doesn't handle the way you want. So if it's moving through the travel pretty evenly um and in general sitting up as high as it can while still absorbing as many of the bumps um to keep you moving fast down the trail is is like i guess simply put how, what i was what i was looking for out of the bike 
Yeah, yeah, fair. So how do you get then? You've got a set of numbers, like I say, numbers and graphs and linkage positions from the software. You've got your geometry numbers because you kind of know where you want to be with all that stuff, again, from experience. How do you go about taking this 2D thing with, at that point, a pretty limited engineering experience and getting a frame made that you can go and hang some forks and wheels on and go ride? So my first, um, I guess, positive experience that that kept me moving down this path was I emailed Frank the Welder. Um, Frank the Welder is pretty famous in the East Coast of the United States. When I was growing up racing in, like right when I was getting started in the mid-2000s, he was making um, sinister bikes, which were pretty popular in the northeastern part of the United States. And then started making some of his own bikes called FTW. Um, and they were downhill bikes that were raced around the, the local races that I was doing. And Frank was kind of a legend because he's a, a dude who was out there riding them and he was the one hand making all the bikes. So I, re- I remember Frank from that. And when I had this idea to make my own bike and had this um, 2D I guess I didn't even have a 2D mo- like drawing. I just had pivot locations relative to the bottom <laughs> bracket that I wanted. And uh, I looked up fabricators. There was a lot of people doing road bikes and BMX bikes here in the US. But as far as suspension bikes goes, there really wasn't many choices. Um, there's maybe like three. There is uh, Brent Foes out in California, and mm-hmm. he was still he still is making all of his own bikes, which are beautiful bikes. Um, and then there was Ventena in California, and then Frank was the like three that I could really find, and there wasn't a lot of information on any of them. Um, but I I shot an email to all of them, and even a couple of the BMX companies. And Frank responded within 30 minutes. I guess he, he, he probably didn't himself, but he had um, somebody that helps him with managing his office um, and going there. Now there's only uh, Frank, one of his helpers, and somebody that helps him run the business that are there. But he shot back an email really quickly. I think I, I, ex- I included a screenshot of the bike that I drew on Linkage and what roughly I wanted to do with the, the project. And... Um, he told me that he can do it and he remembered me from racing and nice. he would, he would be interested, like, let's set up a phone call. We'd, we'd, we can do it and we can help you out. So with that info, I was like, sweet. Like <laughs> if I had hit a dead end there, I might've stopped. <laughs> but luckily, uh, f- I got on the phone with Frank and he, um, recommended somebody who could help to make some of the 3d pieces that we needed to build the frame. Frank suggested what tubes we should use to start with like it's kind of tough to i knew what from a geometry and pivot location perspective what i wanted but to connect all those with tubes and input it in 3d strong enough and the right flex and um not gonna have problems that give you a headache is is a really more complex thing now looking back than I thought it was then, um, especially to do so on somewhat of a tight budget, like yeah. not investing in a ton of tooling. Now I know that the tooling is way more expensive than the frames and having really good tooling that holds everything while you're welding it 
is is key to making a, a accurate frame. So looking for back then, I, I I looked at how much the tubing costs, how much some of these CNC pieces cost, and I was like, oh, this will be super cheap to just <laughs> weld up a frame. Um, Frank's time, um, and to be honest, like I think probably the first frame that I got was around five thousand dollars, like all in, mm-hmm. which is super affordable to make one prototype sample. Like when obviously you have an economy of scale making multiples, but to make one for that price. And, um, I think it's almost like two years ago, right around this time, no, sometime in November that I got this frame and, uh, Frank really led the charge on all the bolts we should use, all the tubes we should use. And, um, the engineer that he suggested, his name was Lee Crawford. He was actually out of England. I think Frank worked with him on some other projects in the past. Frank makes custom bikes for other people. Um, not really downhill bikes recently, but um, road bikes, uh, gravel bikes. He had a dirt jump bike that he was making a run of when I was up there last. So he's welding a lot and making a lot of bikes still. Um, but he suggested that this uh, this guy Lee Crawford could do these uh, designs for me, and he was Lee was really awesome to work with, super quick. Everything was very simple, um, which is what I asked for. It was like, let's not spend a ton of time refining something. Let's just get a proof of concept to ride. And um, yeah, that first bike showed up, and it was amazing. After spending so much time um, looking at it on a computer screen, even from from just like going back and forth, like I was playing with linkage, like I was playing a video game, you know, like <laughs> I, I was, I would go in there and spend hours just moving things around, playing with different bikes. And in the beginning, never thinking that I would actually make one. And then to finally land on like, okay, this is the one that I want to make knowing everything that I know now. And then having that bike arrive in a box and assemble it and ride it was honestly the, the coolest feeling one of the best days of my life was i i think the bike showed up after dark so it was like i, I heard a <laughs> knock on the door after dinner and by two o'clock in the morning that bike was assembled and the next morning at eight i was riding it it was i was like so it was raining i was so stoked it was just such a cool feeling i could not wait to ride that bike and there was a bunch of little things when we when i put it together that were kind of off on that first one the um, the brake mount wasn't perfectly spaced to the rotor, so I had to run uh, spacers between the rotor and the hub, um, kind of like when they switched from the boost front wheels to the or the the one hundred mil to the one ten mil front yeah. wheels. I had some of those spacers somewhere I found, um, and mind you, I did this all in the middle of the night because I could not go to sleep <laughs> until this bike was working. Uh, the chain guide the ISCG tabs were like really far in. So I had to also space those out a ton. It was just a lot of little things like that as I was putting it together, that it wasn't a matter of taking my intense apart and putting that thing together. It was like a lot of homemade stuff going on with that bike. But then when I rode it, it, it rode exactly like I expected it to. And it did all the things that I thought that these numbers would equate to in feeling so much so that I was convinced that I was 99% of the way there as soon as I <laughs> rode that bike. Little did I know that taking that 
to from a bike that had all these little quirks and all these little things that you had to check after every run taking that to a a bike that you can ride for years without worrying about was going to be more than one percent harder than what i cool. just did. yeah quite a lot more <laughs> would you like given everything you know now if you knew that then do you think you'd have still taken this project on because like you say it's it's a huge amount of work way more than i think you you saw from the very start of it for sure i would say a hundred percent yes because i love it so much still <laughs> i i can't stop sometimes i just look at the bikes and I'm like, dude, these things are so cool. I, I just absolutely love them. Uh, so, yeah, I, I definitely would do it again, know, knowing what I knew then. Um, but I think back to the same sort of question when I had started making the bike park at Windrock or doing a project like this. Like, they were all way harder than I knew that they would be when I started. <laughs> but I had already started and... There, I don't know. I just like wasn't looking backwards. I was just at every day doing the best that I could to progress the project. And at the end, I arrived here. So they they definitely were more work, but um, I'm so glad that I did them. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And you were obviously like, there's a lot of love for this bike from the from the first time you swung a leg over it. But it was very much, especially early on, it was all about performance, right? You weren't even willing to give this thing a name. Yeah, I um it's funny I I didn't when I started I couldn't think of a good name and I didn't really want to name it anything. It just I didn't want to I didn't start this to to name it, to paint it, to have some any like image about it. It was all just I want the bike to ride as the best that I can and to think about any of that before figuring out how to get the feel that I want would be a waste of time, a waste of money. I would almost be embarrassed to paint something or come up with a nice logo for something that wasn't optimized yet. Like, <laughs> this is what I focus, this is what I spent some time on, not that, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and it was Martin Whiteley who convinced me, I, I'm going to print this email out one day and like hang it on my wall if I ever have like an official company with with this i mean we have an official company now that we're going to sell the bikes but like if it's more than me and logan doing it out of our basement uh one day i'm going to hang this thing on the wall where he he explained to me all the reasons why i needed a name for my company for my project to refer to it to give it credibility and i thought it would be kind of punk rock to have no name and just <laughs> uh just to have it as like this is my bike it's like it's a bike that that works well to the, him explaining all the reasons that we we needed a a brand associated with a project to to kind of give it that level of professionalism yeah and uh i while i while i agreed with his email i still didn't have any good ideas of of what to call it or what to name it or want to spend time on that, as I as I said, so I um, I was actually recommended some somebody a graphic designer who does branding. Uh, my girlfriend Callie does a ton of graphic design, and she's helped me with a lot of stuff in the past. Does all the things for our bike parks, uh, but I 
this was a little bit different in the sense that it needed, we needed to think of a name for something. And, um, the, the fellow that was recommended, his name was Dan Greta and he worked with, um, new ground, which is a coffee company that I used to be sponsored by. And he helped create their branding and come up with the, the name and the name of their products. And when I reached out to him, he, he was excited to help out and said that the process was that they would, he would create like a list of names and there might be a hundred names on this sheet. And I would give some feedback to which ones I liked, which ones I didn't. And maybe there would be one on there that would work and we could keep doing it until I, like, if none of them worked, we could do it again. And it was, um, like I paid him for each one of those times that we went through a list of names. And I think we went through three before we, we landed on frameworks. And most of the ones that I liked were already like names within the industry because okay. uh, he wasn't a mountain biker himself. He didn't know that like, I think standard, it, it's a BMX company. Actually, one of the ones that I even emailed when, when I was looking <laughs> to get the, fr the frames made was like a really good name. I thought that was an awesome fitting. It's like American and it was fitting for all the reasons that I, that I was looking for a name, but they were already a bike company in the U S so to find something that wasn't used. Um, I think on the, like the last name on the, th the third time we did this was frameworks. And when I read it, I was like, dude, that thing sounds exactly like what we're going for. It was fitting to the project, but not overpowering. I didn't want something that was like the branding and the name was the focus. I wanted the mm. performance of the bike to be the focus. And I wanted the name to kind of just fit along with it without anybody ever noticing it. So um, Frameworks was good because we were laying the, I was laying the framework for the next step in my career. And I said all along, I just wanted a, a bike that works or a frame that works. So it kind of fit with exactly what we were looking for. It is the perfect name, man. And you, uh, it's definitely taken a little while to get to a frame that fully works. There's been a few like hiccups, failures, challenges, issues along the way. Have there been any that like really stand out for you as being ones that have been, you feel have been like really important that you've really learned good stuff from? Um, I can't say that there was like one thing that was catastrophic. Uh, we, we definitely cracked quite a few frames in 2022, um, which had led us th th and they were all minor. Like I never broke a frame into two pieces, but we're, we're getting fatigue cracks and in places that kind of made sense once we looked more into it, um, and were able to find solutions for each one of those. I'd say that along with some of the little manufacturing um, issues that we started to have with consistent, consistently aligning all the frames, um, getting the accurate pivot locations that we were looking for. Um, th those are all the things that just led me down the path of trying to make the frames as easy as we could to assemble because then they would be easier to make perfect yeah. and trying to put all the complexity into the CNC parts of the frame. Um, like one example of that is that in our latest frames, the production frames that we're making now, all the tubes are straight. And in the bottom bracket piece, there used to be 
five parts welded together is like the bottom bracket shell, the ISCG tab, the shock mount, the main pivot, and the connection to the main pivot. And now in our latest frames, that's all one CNC piece. So all those parts are located off the off the bottom bracket. All the kinematic, like all the suspension points are located off the uh -huh. bottom bracket. So they're all accurate because it's in the same CNC part. And then we can attach the down tube to it without a bend. And when you bend the tube, you weaken it. So just doing little things like that, that you could build the frame a few different ways to achieve the same thing. And we went for perhaps a little bit more expensive manufacturing, but making it then easier to build. And if it's easier to build, it's easier to build perfect. So I guess those little things, I had a couple frames that were misaligned or weren't perfectly straight. And I'd say as the guy who was leading the charge, I took full responsibility. Frank was just building what we what we gave him. Um, it was like working with Frank's interesting because it wasn't like working with a factory where you submit a design and they send you a, a quality control checked product back. It's like you're hiring him for his time to fabricate what you want him to make you. So, and that's totally the reason why I was able to jump into this. If I would have emailed a huge factory in Asia, they would have said like, yeah, if you want to order a minimum quantity of this and like put down a deposit, you can get a sample. Like it would have never worked in the beginning. So working with Frank in that capacity was what allowed me to start this in the first place. And with that, I had to take the responsibility for sending him some things that weren't perfect to fabricate and work together to find solutions for that. And I'd say like the failures along the way led us to a more refined final project, final yeah. pro product. And that final product, we never would have been able to go through and refine probably, I think we did like 12 iterations of the frame. And if they were the first one <laughs> to the one I have now sitting next to each other, uh, somebody who's not like a hardcore mountain biker would never notice the difference. They look <laughs> almost the same, but they've been refined and refined and refined. And the final one is that little last two, 3% better than the, the first one that we made was. And I guess that's the benefit of being able to work with somebody here locally in that capacity. Yeah, 100%, man. So yeah, bit by bit, these things have got more and more refined, more and more kind of robust and repeatable and easier to assemble and all that stuff. At what point then did you start to think that maybe we should uh, make and sell some of these things? I think I, th I seem to remember we chatted a little bit about it towards the end of last season, maybe in Val de Sol, but what, when did that thought start to become real? Well, a lot of people were asking me, for them. Um, people wanted to buy them. And, um, I, I guess I, I, I got a couple of them out to some local kids who were racing. Um, it worked out awesome where I sold them the frame at my cost to manufacture it. And they then raced it all season and told me any feedback on issues that they may have run into. I wasn't that interested in the ride quality feedback from them. Like, of course I wanted to hear what they had to say, but I felt like I had a pretty good handle on that myself. I was more interested for them to build the bike with all the parts, whatever they have, 
different than mine and report back any issues they might have um, durability wise just using it like a normal person would sometimes my bikes I would change them so often or going through different um, refinements of the frame or different tube thicknesses to kind of test flex and stuff like that and Ancho would have the bikes at the races torn down so often like pro mechanics work on the bikes way more than the riders get to ride them uh, but in reality that that ratio is completely opposite for for an average person riding a mountain bike so i wanted to see what would happen for other kids riding them and i at the beginning that was just to try to make my own bikes better um mm. not with the intent to sell them um but as i made a larger run of bikes like so i think in one of the the larger production runs that or sample runs that we did where um we made some bikes for those local kids we had like 18 bikes in the heat treat at one time and we, we it was cool because we could see that there was probably room for like maybe two more in the basket to heat treat and the fixtures that we had were set up to where Frank could efficiently make like a larger quantity of bikes at once. Um, I needed some for the season. Asa needed some. Uh, Logan was testing them. We made some, one for Ancho. Um, and then all the bikes for the local kids. So we ended up with that many at once. And it was like, well, if we're going to make this quantity, like we're pretty much able to do like a small scale production at, at this sort of level. So all the people who were <laughs> asking me when they could get one, um, while at first it was like not even something that was on my radar at all. Like I didn't want to be constrained to a timeline or promise something and feel like I had to deliver it. Uh, I, I was afraid that that would influence the decisions that I made to improve the bike and maybe make me want to kind of <laughs> rush into making something quicker than I than I wanted to. Um, I, I was getting to the point where I was like seeing that this was going to be a real possibility. And it was a time when, um, I was kind of, I guess, happy with the bike and to continue the project, we could use the income from selling bikes. It was a good way to keep this going, like with knowing everything that I knew without going back to the scrapping the design back to the drawing board this was like the most refined bike I could make in the system that I was using with everything that I knew. And the process was to make a frame, ride it for a while, take notes, make another frame, ride it for a while, take notes, make another frame. And each next frame make as best as I could knowing what I knew. Um, so I was at the end of that. And like, if I wanted to make the bike better, I need to know things that I don't know now. <laughs> and to do that, I would have to kind of go back and to the experimental start from ground zero uh, phase. So to keep the project going and to capitalize on all the hard work we did, um, it just made sense to offer a production run of frames and people are stoked to, to get them. I get asked all the time and uh, it's cool to try to work on this and try to take it from a, a passion project to offering these to, to the public. 100% man. And durability becomes even more important when you're putting them in other people's hands and not just your own. And I think the initial like 
phase of durability testing pretty heavily involved your brother logan and uh winrock bike part right totally logan did um like we got some frames with everything that we knew from last season um like last season at the world cup we had i think cracked eight of our frames we had eight eight iterations um a lot of them they were like two at once so we had spares but we kind of went through all the frames that we raced during the season last year and put that all into um, a refinement of, of where we thought those fatigue cracks were coming from and got that right after, like about a month after the season finished, we raced the US Open up in Vermont, which was only an hour from Frank's shop. And we picked up those frames after the race and Logan started riding it 10 laps a day at Windrock. Um, and his goal is to get 500 laps. So like 50 days of doing 10 <laughs> laps a day before Christmas. And it's like, it's funny. It sounds like such a cool job at first, but I, I subbed in and like, I would come over, he'd do his 10 laps. And at one o'clock I'd hop on the bike, put my spring on it. Sometimes <laughs> I just ride it with his setup if I didn't feel like changing it. Um, and then do 10 more, or I could do more than him because I wasn't doing it day after day like he was. Um, he had to kind of pace himself so he didn't wear, <laughs> so he didn't go too big too soon. But uh, he did it, and like I think a couple of days before Christmas, he had the 500 runs in, and that was more than like most people would expect to do in a year. So it showed that for the next season, we were on a good path with the bike tested in reality. Uh, of course, we could have just sent some off to be machine tested, but it's pretty expensive um to do it's uh, yeah. roughly like five grand and then you got to break the frame that you sent them um and you should be i wanted to be at least pretty confident in the frame before i sent it there like if they just told me like pass or fail that wasn't necessarily going to help me at that point i wanted to like learn from riding it and be pretty sure through the real world testing that i was on the right path before then throwing it on a machine. So I'm, I'm really glad we did that. And I think it, it, uh, it taught us a bunch of other things too, like power washing the bike, putting it away wet. It teaches you like what bearings to use and the durability of all those things, how the thing, um, like how to just live with a bike. I think there's a lot more than it lasted, uh, an accelerated machine test. It's lifetime. There's a lot more to it than, than just that. Yeah, fair play to Logan for putting a big shift in as well. And uh, in recent months, you've involved uh, some of the experts over at Faction Bike Studio in some uh, like stress-based testing and some then some rig testing, I think, back at their base. Just tell us a little bit about how that all came together and what, what that work involved, because that looked pretty interesting. Yeah, so for people who don't know, Faction Bike Studio is an engineering company. They offer engineering services, services to different um different bike brands they're they're open to anyone who needs it needs help or wants to reach out to them um and they have a i think they have almost 20 engineers there i'm, I'm not sure exactly how many seats they have but they have a, a ton of resources for engineering and, and most of their guys have a lot of experience within the bike industry already um and they reached out to me I think it was at Sea Otter. I actually bumped into one of the guys. I was, I was crutching around so they could catch up to me pretty easily <laughs> and track me down. Uh, but he said that they wanted to start doing 
marketing for their company and they couldn't really talk about any of the projects that they were working on because they wanted to give the brands that they had helped all the credibility to take credit for the work that they were doing and um and it'd be about them and their brand not about a faction who had helped them with either the whole project or a part of the project and they were looking at ways that they could actually market their services without um talking about the the real projects that they were working on and they they told me if if they could help me with anything they they would be willing to may potentially trade the service for some publicity um, featured on our, our videos or my social media showing about the bike development. So um, I didn't really know what to ask for. I had um, <laughs> Dan Roberts, my, my buddy Dan has been helping me and crushing it this year with all the engineering. I didn't want to get like too many cooks in the kitchen. I felt like we were on a good path, um, but I really appreciated it. And I, I kind of asked them, I like, I, I didn't, I didn't want to like tell them that I didn't want anything, but I, I tried to be as honest as I could with that. I, I didn't know what I needed help with. And they suggested being able to do some FEA on the frames and mm -hmm. do this machine testing. And I said, yeah, absolutely. You know, that would be awesome. Um, they explained that they could attach some strain gauges to the frame and let me ride it to get real world values for how much force is on the frame. And then be able to, I guess, first they would do an FEA to, to know where the hot spots were to put those strain gauges. Yeah. Just and then, explain FEA quickly for people that don't know, maybe. So I'm not an engineer, so I'm going to be careful. <laughs> I don't like to talk about things I don't know about. Uh, but FEA is finite element analysis, and it's basically putting the bike through um, stresses on a computer simulation to see where some of the weak areas might be, or I guess it can show like what forces are on the entire bike or whatever you're trying to do the analysis on, whatever part. And it can show like th they would then know like what is within the accepted tolerance of being strong enough. Um, yeah. So it, it kind of like shows the bike in different, like when I looked at it on the computer, they showed me it was in like different shades of colors and like green is like really good. That's like neutral, not a lot of stress on the bike. Um, and then if it would go to, or I guess blue would be the best. And then it would go to green and then it would be like yellow, red would be bad and black would be like unacceptable. So <laughs> they were, they were actually like, I was surprised because I was super curious after I sent them the bike, I was like, how bad is it? And, uh, they, they were like, dude, this bike is, you'd be surprised to know that it's actually better than most that we see. They often come into projects part of the way through to help out when people are having problems. So they see okay. a lot of issues. Um, and they, they were like, we have some little things that we can suggest and there's one spot you definitely need to address. But as a whole, like your bike is is really good and the you could probably actually make it a lot lighter. It, it's already not a heavy bike. For a downhill bike, I'd say it's a lighter, one of the lighter bikes out there. But they said you could make it even lighter for how, how strong the bike is. So they did that FEA pass. Um, and I think, and again, I don't want to talk about too much of it that I don't know. But from what I understand, it's pretty hard to know what the numbers are to put in to 
to, yeah. to like on what direction the stresses, the forces are coming from. And also like with a welded joint, um, Antoine, the engineer from Faction, went and did the welds by hand, like put all the welds in. And the way that you do that is really important to the outcome of the test. Uh, and you kind of need somebody that has a lot of experience doing this with the material that you're working in and the application. So he's like really experienced in doing it in aluminum and bicycles and was able to give us a really good report back to our frame. So once he did that and knew how to look for the hot spots, we put these strain gauges in those places on the frame and went and rode the bike. Did I did a full day of riding. Asa did a full day of riding on the World Cup track at Bromont. I took the bike with me to U.S. Open, Snowshoe, and Mount St. Anne and did at least two runs on the track with, the, with those strain gauges on as well. We had like a data bike and then a race bike and gave them all the info and they could see like what kind of forces you would see during the duration of a run, take some averages and some max forces. And then they created uh, like, I guess a benchmark test for what they thought my frame needed to do to pass mm -hmm. like what a year's worth of use would be. And then multiply that by three. They thought like three year use for a World Cup rider would be a good average. And um, then on the bench test, they put it through that, like what Logan did in months of riding 10 laps a day, <laughs> they did in a couple of, like, I think just, just under a week of running constantly <laughs> on the machine. And, uh, yeah, it lasted almost five years, like just, just less than five years. And yeah, that was with one of the black spots on the FEA that they said that definitely needed to be addressed. They thought it wouldn't okay. pass, but I guess one of the things that's hard to predict is that a lot of it is in the person that's making it, um, in their hands. So like the human factor of Frank welding, like maybe, uh, he welds 10 frames in a day and his like third and fourth one, like, it's like us doing downhill runs, like some are better <laughs> than others. <laughs> uh, uh, hopefully they're like all within a, a certain tolerance, but there's yeah. like a lot to do with the human factor that can't necessarily be predicted through the FEA. For uh, sure. So they, w within what they could predict, the frame lasted a lot longer than they thought. Nice. I guess that's a good thing. Speaks highly to Frank's quality. Um, <laughs> but that was even with this like black spot on the FEA, that was something that was actually pretty easy to fix. It was, just the same as we had changed our gussets the year before. Um, we used to weld across the tube with our thumbnail gussets. There's like a gusset on the, like kind of just looking right at you on the top of the top tube as it goes into the head tube. And we used to weld the whole thing, close it across the tube. And we stopped welding across it. Actually, Cy from Kodak was the one who suggested it. Um, we cut out a larger oval and didn't weld across the center. So only welding on the mm -hmm. sides of the tubes. And our our mount for the rocker pivot to the mainframe um, was kind of like a corner piece that holds the top tube and seat tube into the frame. And that was welded across the center as well. Like the whole thing was just welded in as a kind of corner joint between the top tube and seat tube. And they suggested extending it down the seat tube to run in tangent with the side of the seat tube and then 
putting an oval scallop um, across the center of the seat tube and not welding it the same way we did the gusset. And okay. that's where they saw like the, the high force area on yeah. the FEA. And um, that's where it cracked um, on the machine test too. So that was a super easy change because it was like literally nothing different about the design of the bike except for that one CNC piece and the process of welding it, actually welding it less <laughs> made yeah, it stronger, easy. which is super easy. Frank was like, yep, welding it less, that's going to cost you more. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, that, that was just something that was super useful and I thought came at exactly the right time with uh, the help from Faction because we had done all the work, like knowing what we knew to arrive at what we thought was the best bike we could make and then taking their help with the FEA and finding some little improvements. Um, I think that was better than doing it in the beginning and then working in the other direction. Um, I think it like got us to a good spot and then could just like fine tune these little things at the end. Um, it was like getting some tips on riding that were like, I'll oh, just, break a little bit here at this right point and you'll carry more exit speed through the turn versus uh, like you got to improve your VO2 max. It was like uh, a nice <laughs> little tip that was pretty easy to do that would make a big difference, a noticeable difference that we could quickly implement. It was like they told us that on a Tuesday and by Wednesday, Dan had redid that piece and I had added it to the CNC piece order that we had for our sample frames and a month later, the, the piece is implemented into the bike. And with nothing else changed, the bike has no unacceptable hotspots anymore and is um, all, all looks good from their point of view on the FEA. Yeah, that's super cool, man. And really good peace of mind for you as well because the last thing you want is to put frames out there that either injure someone or cause you a load of kind of comeback on warranty. So, yeah, that's that's super cool. So the, the project's always been from the start, like performance focused, race focused. Does a race focused bike make a bike that's okay for not racing? If that makes sense, like what are the trade-offs there? And is there any, are there any sort of changes in what you're going to be selling from what you and Acer are, are running basically? Um, I think, I think a race bike is pretty adaptable with suspension. I think you can do so much with um, tuning the suspension for each rider that you can find a setting that, that works for you. Like if you were talking about a, a downhill ski, the, the ski is also the spring, and it would probably w be really hard to ride for a skier who wasn't strong enough and powerful enough to utilize. Whereas a bike, like the spring is in the suspension and is adaptable to each person. So I think within that, you can definitely optimize the bike for each rider. Of course, the application is for racing. If you want to take my bike and do 360s on it, it's probably a ma manual, like a long deck or something in a slope style course. It's, it's not going to do that well, but a bike that did that well, wouldn't go down a world cup downhill track. Well, um, I would say that our, our geometry is designed for stability at high speeds. So that's optimized for someone at my level or, or the level that Ace is riding. So if you're slower than that, you could make the argument that it might be a little bit too stable. You could 
get away with a more nimble bike if it wasn't um if if maybe some of the numbers the 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 bike wasn't as progressive or the bike was um softer on the initial part of the stroke or the chain stays were shorter but i think that it's adaptable enough with the suspension and that it gives you the confidence to push it to that speed is is more inspiring for somebody at that level and also there are a lot of other bikes out there that have that i think that was like one thing that i wanted to do with my bikes was not have to compromise them for sale like just make sell the bike that we're racing was was the goal and if if that bike was not what you were looking for then there's plenty of other ones that f- that fill that void um and as far as them being the same as the ones that we're racing yeah they're we made a couple of minor changes in this last um, sample from what I race and what Asa raced all year. Um, nothing that we aren't going to use ourselves, though. It was just things that we learned, like the 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 rocker pivot mount, like I explained from Faction. That's going into the production bike that we didn't race this year. Uh, we learned that we mount the shock on a the the shock reservoirs mounted at a ninety degrees. And with a little shock extender, the shortest one that we can, um, and that doesn't that then we don't need to bend the down tube as much. Like that one CNC part that I explained, we can keep the shock with the heavy side mounted to the main frame, so it's not moving with the suspension. And with it mounted at a ninety degrees, you can keep it like as low clearance as an inline shock would be. Mm-hmm. So we had that mounted to the drive side so that when a bike's in the stand, I I think our initial idea was that it would be easy to access the adjusters. Um, And the more we rode it, the adjusters got full of mud. And it wasn't something that was an issue, like you spray them out or um, super easy to to clean. But uh, we thought it'd be better if maybe we did the 90 degree the other way so that the the adjusters were facing backwards. Um, On most shocks, the adjusters are the same way. So the, sh- the adjusters would be facing backwards if they were on the non-drive side. So we just kind of mirrored the way that our shock was mounted to the non-drive side instead of the drive side after learning uh, that we don't want them covered in mud if, if it's possible. Um, and then the last thing was we um, we made the head tube on the bottom ZS62 instead of ZS56. And ZS62 is actually a standard size. Um, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a common size, but like I went and bought a straight headset from Cane Creek. They had it in stock and it fits ZS62 bottom, ZS56 top. Um, and I, we had some plus or minus 10 mil adjustable cups for our headsets. But when you go 10, you have to put the bearing outside of the headset, which adds axle to crown. And that changes the whole geometry of your bike. So we wanted to try to make that adjustment without having an added uh, stack height or making the axle to crown longer. So going to the larger cup on the bottom can actually get nine. I I had initially, the goal was 10, but uh, my buddy Brandon, who works at Cane Creek, who does a a lot of engineering for them and also helped me with my headsets, um, he was like, dude, the best I can do is is nine with like safe... (laughs) meat around this bearing so we can go nine with zs uh 62 and that gives a pretty good range of adjustment if you can go plus or minus nine from each size frame um without changing 
anything with the geometry or adding any axle to crown on the bottom. I think that's a nice window of adjustment for most people. Um, and that's, that's all that we changed from the bike that we raced this year. Fair. Yeah. And I, I had the chance to ride the bike early 22 last year. Um, and I'm definitely not a quick rider or a good racer. And uh, yeah, it just, for me, I didn't find that it was like a stiff or scary or punishing bike to ride. It just felt like pretty obvious, pretty easy to get to grips with. I think we put it, we put a minus 10 cup in, didn't we? Cause I'm quite a lot shorter than you, but yeah, it's just a bike that for me just worked and was fun to ride from the get go. So it doesn't seem like being a race focused design is going to punish riders that aren't riding at the same pace as like you or Acer maybe. One other thing that I forgot to mention, we we did do a progression adjust too. Um, uh, okay. It was pretty easy at, and I don't have any other flip chips on my bike. I was honestly kind of against flip chips. Um, I thought that I wanted to like do all the homework to deliver the bike in the best setting that I could give and have like no ability to get lost with, uh, with your settings with like so many adjustments. Um, but the one that I thought would be a benefit to change would be your progression also depending on like what weight rider you are if you're a heavier person you can put it in the lower leverage less progressive setting and um kind of get your spring rates in a little bit more usable of a zone so just just the bottom shock mount all it does is um change the progression from 30 percent to 28 percent um okay. if you want more or less there's no bottom bracket change there's there's no there's nothing other changed than that um, which is cool to isolate one thing at a time i did however make the window bigger so that if i'm racing the bike next year we we can change more things than that with just <laughs> getting a chip like way easier to just get two flip chips that are different than um making a whole nother mainframe like i did every other time <laughs> 100% yeah that's for sure and you've been talking about mainframes you've been um, experimenting a bit this year with a steel version we asked for some listener questions actually which we'll cover some off towards the end but a lot of people are like well, when can I get the steel one um, there's a lot of popularity there and it was cool to see it raced at Worlds but yeah just tell us a little bit about like that and the the ride experience with that but the decision to stick with Ali at least uh, in the short term anyway for these original like batch of bikes. Yeah, the steel steel was such a cool thing to experiment with. Um, and it, it it was probably like the the thing that made the most noticeable difference out of all the things I tested. Um, like going to the carbon rear triangle had uh, a ton of weight reduction in the unsuspended mass and um, the stiffness was different, but the feel wasn't that much different when I actually put it on. Um, and I, I was kind of like ex expecting that from a change in material at the front end too, but, um, the steel really did have a different, very noticeable, distinct feel to it. Um, when you'd hop on the bike for the first time, it felt so comfortable, just like the feeling at your hands was way less harsh. You would, it, it would just, I guess, damp a lot of the frequencies coming through the trail from the trail through your bike to you and when you first hopped on it it was like wow this is really cool it's a it's a nice feeling um 
And I probably took that steel front triangle on and off 40 times <laughs> throughout <laughs> like two weeks. Like I, I'm really big on back-to-back -back testing. I think sometimes you jump on something once and it makes a big difference. And then you go back to your base and the change was maybe not as much as you th thought it was the first time. So I, I really like to, in my testing, isolate as many variables as I can and go back and forth um, to really get a good understanding of, of what I'm riding. And I was changing only the front triangle. So like the linkage, the pivots, every part on the bike, the brakes were all exact. Like the only thing that I changed was front triangle. And I think I left the, the crown. So I had two sets of crowns and, and um, headsets in there. So I didn't have to change that every time. And um, going back and forth, like it, it was pretty clear that the harder you pushed the aluminum frame, the more it rewarded you. While you would feel mm. more um, of the trail through your hands, you had the same grip at the wheels. And under, under big load, like a, like a big compression that wasn't perfectly straight, um, a, a really loaded berm, you could feel the steel frame starting to kind of wind up and mm -hmm. the aluminum frame would hold its shape much better. And it felt like all the energy that you put into it would propel you forwards down the trail. And I think Asa said it really well. Uh, he said, I think my dad would love this steel frame. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, I, I, I can... I can understand exactly what you're saying there. Um, and he didn't mean anything else by it other than the bike feels super comfy. So with that information, I thought like, okay, we've, we've gone through 10 iterations of this aluminum frame. And for us racing, we're trying to make the fastest race bike we can. This makes the most sense for what we're looking for out of the bike. It might not be the, the, the smoothest ride, but um, it's the most rewarding the harder you push it. And that's what we're looking for in a race run. I do think that we can go a lot further with the steel frames. The challenge is we were already, an, another thing that we liked about the aluminum one was that the weight was, was lighter. And mm -hmm. I know a lot of people are messing with um, weights on the bikes right now, but riding back to back with bikes of different weights, the lighter ones were easier to place on the trail exactly where you want to be really precise with. And I, don't see any downside, all equal, all components equal to a lighter bike. It just, Asa thought the same as I did. And yeah, with us going for a race bike, that was the direction that we wanted to go. Um, so when we were, I, I would like to do a revision of the steel bike and I really need to get Sai uh, and uh, Matt and Callum from Fiveland together and, t and talk to them because it's something that I'd love to do next year. And potentially even like I talked to Sai about doing a limited run of steel bikes because there's people out there listening to this that are like, what you said is, is actually exactly what I want. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, or totally. even if it wasn't better, they want to, they don't, they want, there's people that want a steel bike, no matter if I said it was the worst thing I ever rode. <laughs> uh, <laughs> steel people are just like, they're like that. Um, but I think we can make a optimized steel frame and I want to like, I'd really love to go further with that. Um, we were just at a spot where it was already heavy is what I was kind of getting to. Like we were, we were a lot heavier than the aluminum front triangle, but we needed to make the bike stiffer. So 
um, but try to retain some of that like vibration deadening feel that the frame had. Um, yeah. and I'm not sure where the next step to go, but I, I, I think that we can take it further with the steel frame and I'd love to do that. Nice. Yeah. That would be interesting to see. You've met, you've mentioned a few people along the way. You've mentioned Cy from Kotick, you mentioned Dan Roberts, like your friends and your like network have been pretty important in all of this. Hey, like a lot of people have come to your help, like I think off the back that they're your friends but also because it's a super cool project and they kind of want to be part of it yeah i definitely would have never been able to accomplish what i have on my own like i I, i'm a pretty big believer in that we're we're all better together working together than um trying to do everything yourself um and and the people you have around you are, are so critical you have to have the good crew um but yeah with this i've had just so much help from people that have spent their time um people that have worked are working at other brands in the industry that uh gave me a bunch of valuable information that maybe they didn't have to or maybe they shouldn't have uh but they (laughs) i think it speaks a lot to like it's a it's a small circle in mountain biking and um yeah I, i i guess to start like my mechanic ancho he has been with me the past two years, like almost half the year by my side, helping me with this stuff, the amount of um, headaches that I've caused him as a mechanic, uh, you, like working for another team, you can just go on the trailer and take a new piece, put it on the bike. Um, some of the races when I was like, all right, dude, we've got four cracked frames and <laughs> which one is the least cra- Like we got to get through this weekend. Uh, and I was like, I can't think about this and race. So I just need you to tell me if I'm doing something that's unsafe. And I put my complete trust in him and, uh, he, he, uh, he made it happen. I mean, so many times, um, just finding little issues with the bikes and he would bring all of them directly to my attention. At some, some point I was like, man, what's he going to tell me next? Like worried about, uh, all the issues, but you need guys like that around. You don't need people just like brushing all the problems under the rug. And, uh, Ancho, like he is an incredibly intelligent guy. He speaks several languages. Um, he's incredible at running the data system that we're using. And with all that, he's like super real with me and will bring any problem that we have. And I, I don't think I would have ever gotten to this point without his help. He's the exactly the right man for the job with all this and even like when i broke my pelvis he was supposed to be here for the two months leading up to the world cup season to work together get the bikes uh ready get get like training and riding and testing and get ready for the season and i i think his flight was still six weeks after when i broke my pelvis and i was like dude Oh, you can change your flight and go home as soon as you want. And he stayed the whole time by my side and like helped me with anything that I needed. Uh, just getting me up and getting me going. And um, I'll never forget when I dropped him off at the airport at the end of that, I was moving around a lot better. I could drive, I could crutch around and, and do things. And I, I was like, dude, thank you so much. And he was like, no, we have to share together the bad times, not just the good times. 
And uh, I'll never forget like how much Ancho has helped me with all this. And he's, he's going to be a part of this for a long time. Um, also my brother, Logan, like the amount, of, you can't ask many people to uh, not, not only show up and, and work for free, but a lot of times <laughs> pay his own way to come and work <laughs> for me with this project. Um, and now that we are taking it on to be a production ready bike, he's highly involved with creating the, the business side and implementing everything we need to sell these bikes. But all the, the video projects that we did, like all the promotion of this whole thing, Logan created all those videos and he, he's not a videographer. We, we bought a video camera and we watched a YouTube video tutorial about how to turn the camera on and started filming. <laughs> and we watched other people's videos and saw like what we thought would look cool and what, what we liked and tried to just make our own version of that. And, uh, he's, he's also just a super smart dude and has, has had my back the whole time. Um, those two guys have just been with me through all of this and, uh, they, they deserve all the credit. Uh, Frank, Frank, like I never would have been able to do this project without him. As I explained, like my first interaction with him was really positive and the amount of frames that he's welded for me and, gone out of his way at times when we needed one the next week for racing. So sometimes he like proved to me that he could do it way too fast. He should have never, <laughs> should have never showed me that when I was like, dude, you're going to get all the pieces on Thursday. If you can send this frame so that I can fly to Europe on Monday, that would be amazing. And he would weld the whole thing together, take it to heat treat, bring it back, ship it to me overnight Saturday. I'd pick it up on Saturday or my dad would and drive it down to me. And, uh, that happened once or twice and he, he like busted his ass, go went way far out of his way to make sure that he could help me. And, uh, you'd never get that type of support from a big factory in Asia. So I, 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 owe, yeah, all the, all the thanks to Frank for doing that. Um, and then Martin Whiteley has helped me a ton with the team. Um, the getting the sponsors to go race the past two years, um, helping me with logistics, registering my program with the UCI, um, just doing things as professionally as he would do on his teams. Um, he's helped me. I, he, he got me onto the Trek World Racing team in 2009 and has helped me every step of my career since. And the past two years, we've been working together in um, a lot closer capacity. Oh, well, I guess just a different relationship like uh, he was the team manager and I was the rider and now I was running it myself and he was giving me advice and uh actually next year he's going to be officially our team manager with me and Asa nice. racing the world cup so I owe huge thanks to, to Martin and I I just wanted to thank a couple other people real quick that I, I hope this is interesting because they're they're people in the industry who um went out of their way to help me that didn't have to, uh, Ben Walker from Scott was, was somebody that taught me everything that I know about the suspension kinematics. When I was racing for Scott, he gave me a ton of advice and, um, kind of explained things in a way that I would understand. Um, he was a, between the engineers and the racers as a product manager for the gravity bikes at Scott. And as like a 
22 year old kid racing on their team he like explained engineering terms to me and feelings uh that i could really relate to and understand as a bike rider and all that gave me like the platform to be where i am now in a position to do this project um my buddy isaac lifeson he he was uh he's from norway he's raced a bunch of world cups i think a lot of people are familiar with his name um and has made a bunch of his own bikes as well he's like way more of a man than me for for welding them all <laughs> and racing them like doing every step yourself uh I, I just have a ton of admiration and respect for him doing that and he kind of showed me the ropes of doing linkage he would do all his bikes on linkage and then weld them himself off of that and he showed me how it all worked and inspired me that like if he could go to the world cup and get top 30s on a bike that he welded himself then I damn well better be able to have somebody else <laughs> weld it for me and go get those results. So, uh, yeah, I, Isaac's, uh, has gave me a ton of pointers through the process of starting all this. Um, Lee Crawford, who I mentioned helped me with that engineering in the beginning. He was like one of the first engineers that helped me out, um, and was awesome to work with through this. The engineers from Scott, uh, Ben introduced me to them at Lenzerheide in 2021. And I like had a first rough draft of my uh, initial frame from Lee at that time in 3D. And I knew Tim Stevens really well from when I worked for Scott. And it was actually him and Dan, who's Dan's freelance and helping me now, um, who were the two engineers that we worked with then. Um, but they were there at the World Cup. It was like the last European race of the year. And after the race, I brought my laptop to a bar in the center of the of the pits there and I and those engineers just tore my design apart and were like you need to watch out for this like this will be a problem like invaluable advice that they gave me uh over a beer af like after the race before the after party I still had my knee pads on from racing that afternoon <laughs> and these guys are just tearing apart my computer screen giving me advice and uh, that was super, super helpful. Uh, my buddy Kieran McKinnon, who he works for Santa Cruz doing ride quality. Um, he does like all their ride testing and all their shock tunes. Um, he is a super smart dude. He has been a friend of mine. He's my, my age. We were on the world's team together in 2011 in Champry. Uh, so we, we've known each other for a long time and he's kind of transitioned from racing to doing this ride quality position at Santa Cruz. And through the whole project, I would send him updates and like design ideas, uh, ride quality goals with the frame. And he would give me like his honest opinion, brutally honest on everything and uh, was super supportive. I sent him, like still do send him every revision that I get to ride, he'll ride it and give me feedback and, um, Santa Cruz is obviously cool with it. Like he even did a video with me when I was using a reserve wheels where he was riding my frame. And I guess, I guess he gets some perspective to give feedback on their bikes too, by riding other ones. So, um, he's, he's helped me a ton and, and I just wanted to thank him for it. Uh, Jimmy Davis from Cascade Components. They made a bunch of the links that we used on our first bikes. He, uh, 
basically told us that our initial links were not gonna were, were unacceptable and not having a strong <laughs> connection on the rocker link wasn't gonna work and made us um our our the links that i raced the first season and was a huge help with that uh also a bunch of design advice um ben arnett who is my mechanic when i was on yt he's been a friend for a long time he was two years my my world cup mechanic and now um, he's living in Canada and he has his own um, distribution company called Alba Distribution up there. He's got a great life. Like I always see him riding the coolest trails and he's a mechanical engineer as well. And on the second version of the frame, I, I pretty much sent Ben this message that I was like, I really need your help. Can you please, <laughs> like, I'm, I, I don't mean to ask people, like convince people to do things, but I think that you would be great to help me with this frame <laughs> and I would love to work with you cause you're my friend. And he designed the bike that I raced la in 2022. Um, like once I went through all the r rudimentary prototypes, he made the refined version that I raced most of the season. Um, and it was, it just like worked out so that he didn't have a lot of time when I needed his help cause he was the mechanic for Jack Moyer. And he was also running his business. And then now he has more free time because he's not traveling as a mechanic. And at that time, he was also an engineer for One Up Components. Um, now he's just focusing on his distribution company and he has more time. But I've, I've uh, started working more closely with Dan. So it was just like, I, I just wanted to make sure that he knows that he did a ton to help this project and he, de he definitely deserves it. Um, Dudes from Specialized actually gave me a ton of their time uh, and a, a bunch of really valuable information. Um, when I was having some of the cracks on my frame, I'd reached out to Steve Seletnik, who I actually listened to him on this podcast. Like you did a recording <laughs> with him and they were talking about shot peening and like different ways that they made yeah, yeah. the aluminum frame stronger. And I remember asking you if you could introduce me to them because... I thought it was so interesting. And uh, when I reached out to Steve, he was like, yeah, no problem. Like we can set up a call. Um, the engineer who's done the last four demos is Brian Robinson. And uh, he's he, he'd be happy to talk to you if you want to talk to him. And he called me for 45 minutes, like looked at my drawing. He actually sent me um, a white paper on shot painting. And it was like, hundred pages long and it was all an engineering <laughs> talk and i was like all right if like the dude said he'd call me tomorrow and he sent me this i'm gonna read the whole thing and i was like struggling with it like it was i i, I struggled to understand <laughs> what a lot of it said and when i when i when he answered the phone he's like hey did you did you check that uh paper i sent i was like yeah dude i read the whole thing but like i'm not sure i understood everything he's like oh yeah i didn't understand it that much either it's pretty hard to read <laughs> But I just owed him, I felt like I owed him the time if he was going to call me that I actually read the paper. But he went on to like talk to me for 45 minutes that day and go over some of the cracks I was having and um, give some advice on our heat treat process and like a ton of like really real information, not just like, I don't know, saying that he talked to me to to check the box. Like he, he really helped a ton and he was just such a nice dude. And I just want everybody to know that like Specialized is a huge company, but there are real people there that took the time to help a little guy like me. And it shows that we're like, we're all in it together. 
And it's I hope, cool to hear that. Hope one day I can help them with something to repay them. Uh, but yeah, that was, I'm grateful for that. Um, Evan Turpin, who I know you interviewed on, on the podcast a few times, he's been working on his Contra bike and has been a huge inspiration. Um, I think like right when it launched, I was, I was following it on, like I followed Contra on Instagram and he wrote to me, he's like, that's so cool that you're following me. Like would love to talk sometime and talk to him on the phone, like a couple days later for over an hour, just couldn't probably just like this podcast because you can't stop talking <laughs> about bikes because I just uh we both liked it so much but he um gave me a bunch of little pointers and experience that he had and um we actually met up in Santa Cruz and did some shuttle runs and swapped each other's bikes so I got to ride his bike and he got to ride mine we both gave each other some feedback on it and we, we each had our own preferences that I think led to the way that we designed our bikes but I can say that um, his bike was a ro- it rode amazing, and he did a great job with it. And uh, just want to thank him for helping me. Uh, Cy Turner from Kodak, he helped me with all the steel frames and spent a ton of time. He actually did all the 3D modeling of those steel bikes, and he checked the tube strengths to try to com- be comparable with my aluminum bike um implemented a lot of the stuff that they learned from their production bikes on my steel bikes and then matt and callum from five land who produce his bikes they welded them all up for me they came to watch me race worlds at fort william um, invited us back to their shop the day after the race at fort william which was shockingly similar to frank's shop (laughs) just like the scottish version of almost the same thing um but those dudes were super nice. Uh, Troyden Morrison from Cascade, or sorry, from uh, Crestline Bikes. Um, he was the one that introduced me to the factory at VIP that's making my carbon rear ends. And he was the one that started the Crestline project. And it's a bike that Sam Blinkensop races. Another dude that talked to me whenever I had a question, made an introduction. I would have never been able to get into that factory without his recommendation. Um, and again, just talked to him about bikes for the longest time. <laughs> uh, Brent Foes, actually, a uh, name from a long time ago. He's still making yeah. frames. Um, I went to visit his shop and I brought my bike with me. I was actually out in California at the time um, with the five dev guys and his shop's pretty close to LA. And we called and asked if he was there. And he's like, yeah, we're here today. Stop on by. I brought the bike and he took a bunch of he took a hard look at it and gave some like advice that was, he didn't know some of the issues that we were having, but he was like, Oh, we, we would actually get our bikes to crack here. If we um, put the pivot through the center of the tube like that. And this is what I did to fix it. And I was like, no way. Like you didn't know, but mine actually, I was cracking them there this season and for him to just take his time to take a look at it. And then we actually even considered having him produce some bikes for us. We ended up deciding to stick with Frank because he, he had been part of the project so long. But we had a video call with um, Brent and he, again, took an hour to talk to us and gave us some pointers on our model and how it would work in production. And uh, he was like, yeah, if I can help you, I'd love to. If if it doesn't work out, that's all good. And uh, the old dogs like that, they just have so much experience from actually doing it. And I think like this product has been a nice mix of that with um, like younger 
engineers that have a ton of power power with their um, computer systems. And uh, I guess that's like the contrast between Faction, who they stepped in at the end of the project and helped so much with engineering and doing the FEA on the frames and measuring um, all this real world information to put into uh, our bikes. And without their help, we definitely wouldn't have an optimized as optimized of a bike as we are going to be able to sell. So, uh, they helped a ton and, and then Dan Roberts, like I, that, that guy was going to be the last guy I mentioned, but, um, he's, he's been helping this, like he came on this year to help with the design of the carbon fiber rear triangles. And through that kind of stepped into doing the complete engineering for the whole bike. We, when we, sent our frames to VIP to be tested with the carbon fiber rear triangles. They, the front ends broke before the rear ends did, which wasn't surprising. The uh, aluminum definitely fatigues faster than carbon fiber will. And when they gave us the report on that, it made the most sense since Dan was leading the communication and the design of the carbon fiber pieces to kind of optimize the whole bike to work together. And I look forward to every time that I have a chance to call Dan. I, I try to respect him and like I paid him <laughs> to, to help me with this model, like this frame. And I try not, like, I feel like I've taken so much more of his time than, than I initially thought. Like this stuff just keeps going on and on and it never stops. But um, whenever I have a chance to like set a time to call him, normally it's like I wake up pretty early to get him in Europe in the middle of his day and like I just can't wait to talk to him because we're going to talk <laughs> about bikes for an hour and it's so exciting. So he's helped me so much. And yeah, those are all the people that I just wanted to take, uh, hopefully not too much time to thank because they, they absolutely deserve it. Yeah. It's super important because it's very easy on the surface of all the rest to, to look at it and be like, you know, Nico's done this cool project, which you have and you're the driving force behind it. But like you say, it takes a lot of people to put, put something like this together and make it as good as it is. So yeah, it's cool to hear like the story behind all these people that have been involved in it. So yeah, you've got this, you've got this wicked product. Basically you've gone from being a prototype race program to kind of starting to think about making this a bike company. Like how have you taken it, I guess, through these last few phases to get it ready to go to market? I guess like, you know, specs and builds and all that kind of stuff is something you've got to start thinking about and like how have you how have you approached that what are people going to be able to buy yeah the the frame will be as i described like the frame that we raced this season with those couple of minor changes um like if i'm riding it in my middle setting on the headset with the 30 percent progressive i won't notice that the the rocker mount is going to last longer because it's not welded across the center and the shocks flip 90 the other way. It's the same riding bike that I raced all season and Asa raced with. Um, we are going to offer the frame with an option to buy it as a frame only or mm -hmm. with uh, their choice of uh, Fox, Rock Shocks, or Olin's shock. Okay. Um, and I work pretty closely with each one of them. Obviously, Fox is my preference as a as a racer i've um especially as a complete kit going racing like the fox fork is 
incredible. And I think it's the best um, performing fork that we can get. So as a racer, that's always my preference is to use Fox suspension. And um, I'm really comfortable with, with their shock. And they even worked with me to try to get the, the tune for the bike that we're gonna sell. That was one thing that I had to bend Kieran's ear a bit on because he does a lot of that. I was like, how do I take like the tune that I like and make sure that it's going to be good for other people? And I kind of landed on the fact that I, if I could have a setting that I liked in the shock with it pretty closed on all the compression settings and yeah, it would probably have a range that would work for most people being that it's a race bike. Um, there's a ton of bikes out there you can buy with a really light shock tune and then have to change it to a firmer one if you want to race. But I wanted it to be race focused and sure, a lot of the people that buy it might not ride at my personal level, but they're racing it and something close would work for them. Um, so with each of the shocks that we're offering, I I did the same thing. I, I sent a plotted, uh, leverage ratio to to the shock manufacturer um they built a shock for me based on that info um i did all the ride testing um and it's i guess a little bit of a gray area because i'm a fox athlete but i also own the the brand and wanted to make sure that i was choosing the the best shock for each person um i can respect that people have their preference on what suspension that they want to use being that this bike's marketed towards amateur racers some might just prefer to use rock shocks or rollins and that if that's what they want to do i want to make sure that they're at least getting the optimized shock for my bike not just um whatever medium compression tune that they could get aftermarket so when they order the frame, they can know that it'll have been optimized for this bike for racing. Um, I'm offering a range of spring rates based on the rider's weight. So when they go to buy the bike, they can choose and we'll have uh, next to it, like say you want a 450 spring, we can say that a rider between 150, 160 pounds, this is the spring rate that you want. And in all of them, we can offer 25 pound jumps. So with each is a coil shock, we can get them exactly the spring that they need for themselves and suggest some settings to go along with it. The main thing that would change is the rebound setting. Probably we'll start them pretty close to the middle on compression, but the, some of the shocks have a different rebound tune for the lighter spring rates. So with um we're gonna offer the bikes for pre-order with the 90 day lead time we can take all that info from each customer and get them whatever shock that they want with the spring for them and then send them along a little note that says hey we suggest that you start between just say eight and ten on rebound um whatever it is and it's almost as if you're getting the service of sending your shock away to be tuned just for you like you would do mm-hmm. aftermarket um but you're getting that like mounted to your frame as when it shows up ready to go and i think there is a lot of value in that i've personally enjoyed the process of trying to optimize like the shock's a big part of it our frame is um i would say it's pretty neutral and easy to tune for but to make if you're chasing marginal gains like the shock can can make a couple percent difference and 
getting a shock that's going to be the best for the bike is like contributing to the total ride quality of the frame. And I think people will appreciate that when they get it. Yeah, definitely, man. That's a nice thing to have. What about pricing? Because you're making small batch, you're making it in the US. There's a huge amount of research and development that's gone into all of this. Like, How much are these things actually going to cost? So the frames alone will cost $3,950. And that is including a headset and all the hardware for the frame. It'll have a frame protector on the um, chainstay. So we were talking with both trying to figure it out with STFU or um, VHS, trying to buy mm-hmm. some like a large quantity of some of their tapes to put on the chainstay. We'll have a down tube guard. Um, all that stuff is included with the frame and a straight zero headset. Um, then if you want to get the rock shock shock, the total frame kit's 4,400 USD. With the Fox shock, it's 4,450. And then with mm-hmm. the Olin shock, it's 4,650. Okay. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the conversion to pounds these days, but uh, that's just what it ended up costing to make the the best bike we could. Um, as we were kind of the main re- way we got to this number was just tried to account for every cost that we had um, down to the cardboard boxes, uh, credit card fee, insurance, um, and make sure that we were covering every base. And when we arrived at that final price, I was like, man, Logan, our, our bike is pretty expensive. Like there's only <laughs> like Yeti and, and Uno and Santa Cruz that are more expensive. And Logan was like, well, yeah, when you started making this bike two years ago, you, you didn't set out to make the cheapest bike you could. So don't be surprised now that it's <laughs> not cheap. <laughs> and, uh, I guess, yeah, it's the, the, the price is not as I don't know. It's not something that I what was a target for me. Like I just, I just wanted to make the best performing bike that I could. And this is what it ended up costing. I, I think the same about our race entry fees. When we have our downhill Southeast races, it's like, if we want to provide the best timing that we can, um, the best racer experience, uh, have good coverage of the event, um, good tracks, uh, like the entry fee ends up just costing this. It's like, it's what it takes to do it. And I think as long as the value that you deliver is exceeds the price that people pay, I think I've learned anyway that most of the time they're, they're pretty happy with that. Yeah. I'm with you on that. And it's limited at least initially anyway, to a hundred frames, right? We only have the capacity in this first 90 day window to make a hundred frames. That's what Frank can do. And it was really important to me to deliver the frames in February because the, at least they're marketed towards amateur racers and we want to make sure they get them before the season starts. Like even on pro teams, many times that, that deadline has, has kind of got pushed back and back and it's tight to get the frames before the season. So uh, I didn't want to, um, overextend and, and promise more than I could deliver. I wanted to make sure that we could get these frames out to the people that need them in the time that we, that, that they need to get them ready to go racing. And, you know, that's all we're going to do in this first batch and in the first year for downhill bikes and try to learn from it. Just like I said, keep it manageable and do a good job of the delivery. And then in the future, um, 
in the next year we can do more if people are interested yeah fair are they going to have fancy things like paint and decals and all that jazz or is it going to be like as it currently looks no it's going to look as the frame does um we so, so a friend of mine here has a cool um automotive restoring business and he's going to help us to bead blasts or we're going to use some sort of media to blast the frames we've been kind of cleaning them with scotch bright pads and getting like they have some oil on them after heat, uh, heat treating and dipping them in oil and then welding them um so we've been just like cleaning them ourselves, and it takes a pretty long time with the scotch Bright pad when when they come out to do it and the other day he did like a frame in about 30 seconds with the <laughs> with the blasting it with uh i think it was um coal that he used and it was the okay. media and it just gives the frame like a consistent finish um it's clean um there's no paint we'll probably uh just tell you if like it's nice that if it scratches ever you can just hit it with a scotch bright and it'll be back to the finish that it had um and the frames do come with uh they'll have a five-year warranty so any issues that people have i think it's kind of like the standard these days i just wanted them to know that we completely back the product and i've we're gonna make an, an extra couple frames in this batch um to have on hand ready if people do have an issue i don't think they'll that'll happen at least right away but if uh anything does happen um we we got their back and we're going to support and and be there to help nice how do people go about getting their hands on one then i'm guessing there's going to be a bit of a bit of a queue forming for these first hundred yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's interesting to see how many people are going to be interested. Uh, we've been communicating mainly through our newsletter. So I created a newsletter on our website, rideframeworks.com, and people sign up there. And I can I've sent two updates so far, um, just giving them like all the info that I just explained on the pricing of the frames, um, giving them all the geometry and all the details, and it's a lot easier to communicate with the people that are already expressed interest. And like, I, I don't know, I don't want to on my own social media be like outwardly forcing selling something. Um, I, I, I love to talk about the project, but as far as like trying to sell it to them or like give them more information, it's just really easy to do it in an email through the newsletter. And there are already people that are, that they didn't sign up for it if they didn't think that they were, interested in buying one so i've been doing that and if people can sign up for the newsletter they'll be the first to know about any of this info the frames are going to go on pre-sale on uh, uh it's next wednesday so it'll be november 8th and we're doing a 50 percent deposit with the pre-sale and that allows us the money to manufacture your frame and then when it's ready, you pay the second 50% and we ship it out to you. Um, it's like I've gotten this far with the project without uh, taking any loan or having giving away any part of my company to outside investment. Like Logan and I are able to do it all ourselves. I've, on all the prototype frames, um, everything we've made so far, spent my own money that I've saved as being a pro racer. Um, and I've been able to afford racing with all my sponsors. They've paid for my seasons to go out and compete at the World Cup. So I don't want to go and uh, give away my company or take a loan. <laughs> and if we can just do it in a way that they place a pre-order, 
that gives us the capital to place this order of a hundred bikes and um, deliver them their frames. And they're, they're investing in them more so than giving away uh, like ownership to get investment. Yeah, totally, man. And that, are sales US only or people can buy them anywhere and just pay the shipping? Yeah, our primary target is the US. Um, to be honest, we're really just not set up to or, or know how to ship them internationally. But if somebody is international and they really want one, we'll work with them and we'll ship it to them. They just have to be totally aware that they're going to have VAT when it gets into their country. That can be different in, in every country. Yeah. And I... And I don't like I'm not experienced enough to, to to do a good job at all the imports. So um, I'll gladly sell them the frame and then put the paperwork in the box and ship it anywhere in the world. But if it shows up at customs in their country and they have uh, a bill for thirty percent of the purchase price or whatever, they just have to be ready to pay that and. Um, know that do the research on their end before before purchasing it but um and i'm I'm also not uh, close by if they do have an issue again like i'd ship them out anything i need uh one of the nice things about being in the u.s and selling them in the u.s is um i'm at every race every downhill race and i've got all the spare parts all the bearings all the <laughs> somebody needs something and they're in a pinch like i can help them out um but if they're across the world it'll it'll take a little bit longer to help them than if they were right here. Um, but in any case, I am happy to help and I'm, I'm happy to try. I just want them to be aware of, of how to, what to expect. Yeah. Nice. So will there be like a, a buy now button on the website from Wednesday the 8th or will you need to be signed up to the newsletter? No. Um, on the 8th, uh, it'll open up to the first hundred people that purchase a frame. Um, It'll be on there, as I said, to choose medium or large, frame only, or frame with the three shock options. And um, yeah, we have 100 total build slots. And once those fill up, um, then that's that's all we can do in this first run. Um, I have no idea if, if only a couple of people want one and, and we actually end up doing less than 100 in that time frame, or if um, they will sell out. So uh, I don't do this to create demand and try to pressure people to buy something but i would encourage them if they really truly are interested to try to go and place the pre-order in case it does sell out um we did send out a survey and with with the pricing and we had 290 people say that they would be interested in buying a frame so that's really positive okay. i know there's a big difference between saying you will and actually paying for it but um I think with that, I just wanted to tell people if if they if they really want a frame and they want to make sure that they get one, they should probably be prepared to go on in with the first day when the pre-sale opens and 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 book their spot. It's going to be interesting for you and Logan sitting there watching that website traffic on the first day. Eh? <laughs> it's like watching at the World Cup when you like had a bad quality running, you are waiting to see <laughs> if you're going to be sixtieth or not. I'll probably just go for a ride and check it later in the day. <laughs> yeah, let it be, let it be. That's cool, man. I'm super excited for it. It's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, I'm interested to see riders out there on them. And not content with just getting this DH bike up there, you uh, obviously had a little bit of spare time on your hands and decided you'd knock, knock up a bit of an enduro bike, which 
I've heard from a couple of people that have had a spin on it that it's pretty pretty damn good. Like, what's going on there? Are we going to see these things becoming available at some point? Let's see how this first one goes. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of want to make sure that, like I said, we can do a good job of the sale. There's there's a lot to learn, and I don't expect that I know everything, and I've never done it before. So I want to make sure that I can sell people these frames and deliver them when I said that I would, and uh, just do that whole process the best that I can. But in the future, it would be awesome to do the enduro bike. Um, I made one first sample of an enduro frame this summer, and it's something that I've been wanting to do for a while. I actually, most downhill riders ride enduro bikes or trail bikes more than they ride their downhill bikes. Um, it's just something that we all do for training, and it's a, it's a nice way to get time on the bike at a, a lower risk than riding downhill all year long. Um, and I'd ridden so many different bikes and couldn't get everything that I wanted out of a bike that was available to buy. So I, uh, I designed this bike with what I knew from my downhill bike in the same process as riding other bikes, taking notes. Um, I had ideas, um, that were a little bit different for the enduro application based on the bikes that I rode. And then also what I learned from my downhill bike and the first sample that I got um, it, from a suspension perspective worked really well. I was super stoked with it. Um, it definitely was knowingly pretty heavy and, uh, a little bit rattly. And, um, the, the biggest lesson that I learned was that my carbon chainstay wouldn't fit going to a, a lower main pivot height and a shorter chainstay than my downhill bike had. Um, that part just didn't have the clearance to work on on both frames as I hoped it would. And that was a big like justification for me buying that carbon mold was that I could use it on multiple bikes. And um, I'd say that was my education in double check <laughs> was uh, I have to buy this chainstay mold twice, um, which I won't make that mistake again. But um, from, from like a pretty, with all that, it was a heavy, uh, kind of janky with uh, having to run wider spindle on the cranks to fit the uh -huh. the clearance to the chainstay using the aluminum downhill chainstay instead of the carbon one that we made. Um, with all those janky things, the bike still rode amazing. And I thought it, it was, um, yeah, it's going to be all the refinements, I, I kind of knew that I needed to do them before making this. So the second version, I think, will be pretty darn nice. Um, it was pretty cool. We got the frames and a week later, ASOB won the national champs in enduro with the frame. So it, it showed that the frame didn't, didn't hold them back at all. And, uh, from a suspension side, definitely did its job. With some strong competition there as well, eh? Richie Rude in second place. It wasn't like it was, uh, an empty event with not some talent there. That's pretty insane. Yeah, I mean, the guy uh, won the EWS overall this year, and Asa gave him. I mean, if if it was really close between the two, and we were fortunate as a as the team that Asa came out on top. But if anything else, just benchmarking yourself against a guy like that and and being that close to him on either side of it is is awesome. Yeah, definitely. We should take some uh, listener questions. I asked the other day on Instagram and there was a lot of responses. I think we will have covered some of the stuff. There's quite a lot of excitement surrounding Acer, quite a lot of questions around how much money people should be putting on Acer for the World Cup overall. Uh, 
I I would say uh, from what I can see, he's got a really good opportunity to to get a podiums and wins in the junior field. You never know. He's a first year junior. There's other kids out there that um, that'll be really strong next year that we haven't heard of yet. But um, man, the kid is so talented, both mentally and technically, and he lives at a pretty high altitude and rides all the time. So he's naturally fit. And I think once he gets to do some specific training, he'll be even better. So um, I'm putting all my money literally on him. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Yeah. Shows the faith in him for sure. All right. Let's hit some of these other listener questions. So brother, and apologies when I butcher most of these Instagram names, brother Benignus asks if you're interested in building something around the pinion gearbox like Gamax have. Definitely. I um, actually got a pinion gearbox from Gamax <laughs> at the last race. Uh, I've, I've been around their pits to see their bikes and they're, they're such nice dudes and they're like very like-minded in, in their project as I am. And I, uh, at, after the final at St. Anne, I, I asked Romeo if, uh, he had a gearbox I could buy, like just joking, like, yo, when are you going to sell me a gearbox? Their season's <laughs> over. And he opened his trunk, pulled one out and said, you can have it for free. And no uh, way. I think that was just the, uh, little gift I needed to give me the fire to put that thing in my bike. So, um, now that we're selling these frames, they're going to be, they are the most refined that I can make knowing what I know now. And what I'd like to do next year is go back to doing experiments like I did in the beginning with a high pivot bike and a standard pivot height bike and this mid pivot bike. Um, I want to make more test mules. Um, I'd love to make your vision of the steel bike. I want to make a gearbox bike. I'd love to make a bonded bike. And uh, each one of them excites me a lot. And I, like I could, I could talk about that forever. So yeah, we're going to make <laughs> well, a gearbox. Yeah. It's not ideal. I put a question in what is on the list for experiments this off season. So it's like he was in your brain and knew you were thinking about stuff. Like, yeah. There's certain things that other than the gearbox, there's certain things that are kind of things you're definitely going to, going to get done this winter. I wouldn't say necessarily over the winter. Cause we're, we're, it's crazy how much time I've put into getting these production bikes going. Um, so I want to really focus on the delivery of those. Uh, and we're shooting to, if we're 90 days from the pre-order, we're, we're like getting them, um, our first week of February and shipping them the second week. So until then, I want to make sure that that's our focus to keep that on track and be, uh, making sure that we do a good job of it. But next season, um, like I, my goal is to be the one who does a lot of the test riding and tries future concepts. Um, mm-hmm. And then I don't want to give Asa anything that's un- unproven. So we, I might be trying different stuff like a gearbox, but I would never put that on his bike in a race until I knew that it was the best option and it was going to be reliable. So I hope next year to actually race with some of this stuff myself. Um, you learn so much by racing and I hope to figure all that stuff out and, uh, progress the project um yeah the the gearbox the the bonded frame and revising the steel frame matt and callum from five link can also do titanium frames so all those things are stuff that i would love to do interesting it'd be cool to see some experimental bikes at the world cup races for sure all right the next one john boy lauren wants to know what you're most proud of out of this project um i just the 
the the the bikes that I get to race. Like uh, the the bike that we're gonna sell to people, I'm I'm very proud to offer it. Um, the night before the race at Snowshoe, I was just thinking to myself how cool it was to race this bike. And in my whole career, I've gotten to race a lot of really good bikes, and this one was by far the the best bike that I've ever raced. And um, with some, we had some really cool suspension stuff from Fox for the last two races that they invited me in to, to test some advanced concepts with them. And the bike that I was racing with the suspension that they had provided was incredible. And I knew that I wasn't in a position to capitalize on it, but that's also why I kind of wanted to take the risk. Um, coming back being my first race of the season after my injury. But uh, yeah, I'm just most proud to swing a leg over these bikes. And when, when they perform the way that you expected them to on the trail, it's the most rewarding feeling. Very nice, man. Uh, Zach Faulkner asked, if they weren't raw, what color or livery would you run? <laughs> uh, I, I honestly haven't thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I never set out to like make them a certain color. I think it speaks to our, our, uh, goals as, as frameworks that the rear ends are clear coated carbon fiber and the front ends are raw aluminum. Like the, the material is what it is and we're not trying to change it to make it look any different. It's, it's, uh, it can speak for itself. However, I do really like brands like Yeti, I have a lot of admiration to the way that they have branded the color turquoise to their frames. And like watching Richie ride that bike in the World Cups was just so cool. Um, as a fan, I was so stoked of it. And I would love to figure out a way to have a brand identity like they do. But at the moment, um, it's, it's not necessarily on the top of my list. Fair. All right, Kermit von Henderson and Robbo want to know what's the most surprising or unexpected thing you've learned along the way. Hmm. I guess I was surprised that my bike actually worked the way that I expected it to when <laughs> I first got it. Um, once that happened, uh, after that, I didn't really have any huge surprises. Um, I gave me a good confirmation in my feeling of numbers versus ride feel. And mm -hmm. after that, I, I was, I felt like I was well calibrated as a rider to know what to expect from the changes that I made. And they all did what I expected them to. So yeah, I guess once my calibration was on, I was, there, there weren't many surprises. I, I would say the one was that I thought going to the carbon rear triangle, um, it reduced 800 grams of unsuspended mass. The flex was actually a lot softer than the aluminum tubes that we were using. And the feeling really wasn't that much different. Um, it was very hard to notice. And Yeah, 800 grams is a lot as well, eh? I mean, you felt it in the total weight of the bike, but not in the way that the suspension was moving or yeah. really the much, like I couldn't ride it. I, I couldn't necessarily ride any faster with it, um, doing timed runs. So we went to it because it also is a lot more, the, the alignment's way better. Um, 
like I mentioned, the brake mount and stuff that in the beginning that we were dealing with, um, when it's in carbon fiber, if your mold's perfect, then the, the piece is perfect. And it's crazy when I assemble them myself, I can put the carbon uh, chainstay and seat stay together at the chainstay pivot with one hand. Like you can put the bearing the bearings in, put the dust covers on with grease to hold them in, and the thing just slides right together. And the aluminum ones, sometimes we had to wrestle together. Like they all warp a little bit during heat treat. And I, I even was there this summer to help align them. Like we made those chainstays that we used on the enduro bikes, and I did the alignment. And when they came out of the oven, I did the alignment and they were perfectly straight on the alignment fixture. And then still, once they cooled even more, they, they, when I assembled them at home, they weren't as good as the carbon <laughs> ones. So, um, the carbon has a lot of benefits for that, especially in the precise alignment of all the pivots. Um, but I was, if I'm surprised by one thing, it wasn't that that didn't have a bigger impact on the ride feel. Yeah, me too. Surprisingly, there's a lot of people asking when the Frameworks e-bike's going to be ready. I was thinking a G-bike. Like, if I could just pour some fuel in it and charge it up <laughs> within like two seconds, then I never have to stop riding. And all the people that don't like e-bikes will really not like a gas-powered assist <laughs> bike. I mean, think think how much like the the new Stark motorcycle weighs versus a nice two stroke. You could uh, you could make a, a lighter uh, <laughs> gas powered bike. <laughs> Get it done. <laughs> you could you could not have to have a huge down tube for the battery because the fuel would be liquid instead of in a battery. <laughs> be crazy. It's win win. You could flip it upside down and keep running. <laughs> um, no, just jokes aside. Uh, I don't know if I would ever do that. I enjoy riding e-bikes. Um, they're, they're good training tools, especially for downhill riders. Um, they're really nice to get people access to mountain biking that maybe would have a hard time accessing it. Um, my mom, for example, will come to our bike park at Canuga. That's a pedal up, pedal up park. And she used to have a trail bike and she would come and do one run. It would take her a little over half an hour to get to the top and then 10 minutes to get to the bottom. And she'd be kind of smoked after that. And then we got her an e-bike for her birthday. And now she goes and does six or seven laps and yes. she just loves it. So I think it's really cool for, if, if you think that more people riding is a good thing, then e-bikes mm -hmm. are great. And I think that's kind of where the people that don't like them, uh, it's, it's like, Guns don't kill people. Uh, people kill people. It's like that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. People with mustaches kill people. <laughs> uh, so it's like not the e-bikes that are the problem, but the people on them, obviously. And if you think that mountain biking would be better if it was only you out there and you don't like to see other people out there uh, ruining the trails or taking away from your experience, then for sure e-bikes are are contributing to that. Um, but I think they're great for getting more people into it and I enjoy riding them sometimes. I definitely, as like a purist, uh, obviously I'm chasing such a specific ride feel of the bike coming downhill that an e-bike cannot feel as good as, uh, a non e-powered bike. 
on yeah. the trails that I like to ride. So it's like trading off um, quantity versus quality. And yeah, there's times when it's awesome to ride an e-bike, go rip some laps, but uh, the the quality of the ride is definitely better on the descents with a trail bike. So, or a downhill bike is even way, way better than all of that. <laughs> <laughs> so we probably won't right. make an e-bike and definitely not anytime soon. Fair enough. All right. Ride five, Dev. Want to know who ta- who taught you your work ethic? Because you you get a lot done, man. <laughs> oh man, um, I don't know. I'd say I just genuinely love all the projects that I do. Like every everything that I have sh- displayed a strong work ethic to is either my own racing, my bike parks, my race series, or this project of making my own frames. And each one of them is so cool. Like people that have a strong work ethic at their job, probably in their lunch break, go and look at stuff like this because it's (laughs) interesting. And I get to do it all as uh, my own, um, I guess, like self-employed job. And that is super motivating to want to keep doing a good job. And I can feel for myself when it's good or not. I, I... don't really need like somebody to some confirmation that the trail that I built was good or the bike that I made was good or the race that we put on was good or that I did well in the race. Like I can, I can know that pretty well for myself and I enjoy the feeling of when I've done a good job, I feel accomplishment from that and I'm really proud of it. And that motivates me to try to do the best that I can. Good. Like it. Steve Vandercoy wants to know, do you get much interest from your competitors? Do they want to try the bike? Uh, I I do actually. I get a lot of questions. Um, it's really tough with wanting to try the bike because you'd have to, like down to every component, um, people have things that they've become comfortable with. So couldn't necessarily just hop on my bike and feel comfy right away. Um, but I definitely get so many questions. Like anytime I'm at a world cup on the lift, it's one of the first things that comes up from really top. (laughs) Like it's sometimes I have to like pinch myself that like, uh, Benoit Coulange or Danny Hart or Reese Wilson is like just asking me and super interested about my bike. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. And like, I, I, I take a step back because I'm a, I ride with those guys and they're my peers, but I'm also a really big fan of them. So it's it's really cool when they take interest in the project. Yeah, I guess you've had more opportunity than pretty much any racer out there to get a bike just how you want it, to influence design and to try things. Like not many athletes, unless they've been really, really heavily involved in development, and even then there's probably some limitations. Like you've, you're in a pretty unique position, I guess, that that no one else has experienced. I guess so. Um, and I, not to compliment myself, but I, I do think I have a better understanding of the engineering of the bike than any of the other racers. So I've kind of put myself in the position to be able to have that control. Um, and I guess with that comes some responsibility. Like I, I don't have anybody to blame if it wasn't bad, uh, but I can be proud if it was good. And I, I'll say it's like, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I, I, I think back to like a lot of what 
started this, as I described, was Ben Walker um, when I was on Scott, teaching me how the kinematics of the bike work um, and equating my ride field to numbers. And I remember those years I was really struggling because I went from the previous year having a few top five finishes on Trek. Um, I was in the top 10 all season. The last race of the year was the race that I broke my chain and finished fourth at World Champs. And then going to Scott, I was going backwards with my results. And through that, I was struggling with the bike and Ben taught me all this information. And I remember thinking like, man, I just sh should have stayed on track that next year. Um, that bike at the time was so good and I had momentum going and I probably could have uh, got more podiums or maybe even won a race. Like a few of those races I had to like first place splits. So I I believe that I had the speed at on certain days to do it. And now in the position that I am, and, and I haven't even seen as far as this project could go, but I would not trade any of that. Like those two years that were at the time really difficult um, mentally and emotionally going backwards with my results have taught me and laid the the, the groundwork for, for all this whole project. So um, very appreciative for that. Yeah, man. So if someone offered you a world champ, a world champ stripes win or like a, a world cup win, you wouldn't swap it at this point? I mean, that would be really cool, um, <laughs> but I wouldn't change it. Like, I, yeah. I'm still me. And if, like, there was a couple of days, like the, the day that I broke my chain, I was 2.2 seconds behind G, and he, and I broke my chain, and there was quite a few flatter sections on that track. So yeah. whether I won or not, I know that I could have won, and... I got third at the World Cup in Australia with a crash and I was a few seconds off of G again who won and yeah. um, I, I also believe that that day I could have won that race if I didn't crash and I mean, there's probably a lot of riders that could say that in a lot of races but whether I won or not I can know that I at a time in my career had the pace to win these races and whether I won them or not like I'm proud of of the speed that I had, and I can. I went out and did my best every time, and can be proud of it. So, if you could have told me that on that day I didn't crash and I won, or I didn't break my chain and I won, at the time I'd have traded it for anything. But of course, <laughs> now in the position that I am, like waking up every day and working on this project, and like driving out to the bike park that I own during the week to to do test laps to dial in my frame that I'm going to sell. That is the <laughs> I genuinely believe the best bike that you could buy if you wanted to race downhill. I would, I would definitely not trade that for it. Very nice. All right. Quite a few people have asked if there will be a Frameworks enduro team or an or an enduro sponsored athlete at some point. Um, we don't have plans for it next year. Like I said, all my all my money is on Asa. Um, he and I are going to be racing downhill and. We don't have, like, it's funny when people refer to it as frameworks and I have to remind myself that, like, oh, yeah, I created this brand. But <laughs> it really is just me and Logan. And um, it'll be awesome to sell these frames and not only spend money but bring some in. But uh, racing is expensive. And to do a good job of it is really expensive. And I don't see much of a point to not to doing it without everything you need. And 
Um, we just don't have the, the resources to do a good job with the enduro racing. Um, but in the future, hopefully we can get there. It would be really cool. It definitely would. Right. One final question then to wrap up from Jake rides MTB. He wants to know how you see frameworks as a company developing over the next two to five years. Um, I hope that we can keep offering like limited runs of, of frames or who knows, maybe complete bikes. Um, but in a way that Logan and I can manage without having a lot of overhead, having too many people involved. Um, I said that like, I, I gave a long list of people that helped me, but these were like favors from friends. And when you're doing a project and actually working, um, I found it much more efficient with a small tight group. And that's why me and Logan are doing this ourselves to start with. So I'd like to see it not expand larger then we're able to manage between the two of us. And if it is the two of us, or maybe we need to get somebody to help with customer service, we don't need to sell a lot of frames to make a good living at it and keep doing the project. So I would like to keep it small enough and not try to charge too much for the frames. Like the frames now I, I can see are more expensive than other offerings, but they're made in small quantities in the US and that's just the price that it took to get to this product. So without charging too much, I would like to continue to offer limited runs of the frames and do just a really good job at delivering them. Logan and I had a lot of talks about this uh, shock offering and whether this is sustainable because me telling each person what their settings are going to be, <laughs> it's like if we end up, if we if we scale up and sell more bikes, like are you, you're not gonna be able to tell every, every customer a suggested shock setting and then they reach back out via email with questions or wanna ask you. And I just don't wanna get big enough to where I don't have time to do that. Because I, I think it's really valuable. And I think, um, like I love doing it and I, and I can see how much it can help. So I would like to be able to offer more bikes like the enduro bike that we're working on. Um, my best version of a trail bike, whatever bike that I personally am interested in, making one of those the best that I can and then doing it in a limited enough quantity that we can support it really well um, mm -hmm. without a ton of people involved with it would be the goal for moving forward with frameworks. Nice. I like it. It's got a good ethos, man. Well, it's been fascinating hearing the story. I'm super chuffed for you. Like it's been a wicked thing to follow and to have some insight and to have met a number of the characters that are involved in it along the way as well. Like it's a cool crew of people that have pulled this together and I'm excited to see real people out there riding this thing and, and see those first hundred bikes get into the market. So yeah, thanks for taking the time to sit down and chat for it. Just remind people where they need to be heading to find out more about the bike and uh, to get pre-sales going. This will come out on the 7th, so it'll be, they won't have long to act if they want to get in on that first batch of, uh, of 100. Yeah, they can um, check out rideframeworks.com. Uh, Logan and I have set up a Shopify site there where we'll be having uh, all, we'll be doing all the sales. And by the time this comes out, we'll hopefully have it live uh with coming soon on the products so that people can see them and then um i think logan told me it was 10 a.m eastern time in the u.s on wednesday the 8th 
that we're going to open the pre-sales and then um, who knows, maybe maybe the people will buy them all the first day. Maybe um, only 10 people want one. I, I really don't know how it's going to go. Um, but yeah, they can hop on there and, and find everything. And you can also, like I said, sign up for the newsletter because then we can email and get people prepped. Like I know this podcast would be coming out with only a day before the pre-sale. And if you're going to take the decision to buy a new bike sometimes you need more money to get your finances in line or just make sure that's something that you want to do and we emailed out our newsletter group two weeks ago and told them exactly what was coming uh an initial email went out six weeks before that to give them somewhat of a rough rundown so um i like to use the email as i said to communicate with everybody so if they can sign up for that we're not gonna just send one every month regardless or blast you with uh promotions um it's just uh, updates on the on the project and be for people who are interested in the bike. So, anyway, okay. Chris, thank you so much for having me on. This uh, this was super long. I think it's the longest <laughs> podcast I ever did, but it felt like it went by so quick, and I could talk about these bikes forever. Literally, like I just absolutely love it. So, um, thanks for taking so much time and and putting this thing out there. Absolute pleasure, man. No, it's always fun to chat bikes with you, dude. Yeah, all the best, and uh, we'll catch you soon. Cheers. All right, that's it for this episode with Nico. I really hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget to head over to rideframeworks.com if you want to find out more. A massive thanks to We Are One Composites for supporting this episode. Downtime listeners get an extra special 20% off to their awesome Convergence wheel sets and rims for the month of November by using the code DOWNTIMENOVEMBER2023 at the checkout over on weareonecomposites.com. That's Downtime with a capital D, November with a capital N, and the number 2023 with no spaces over at weareonecomposites.com. Don't forget that if you want to help support the podcast, then the best way to do that is by heading over to patreon.com forward slash downtime podcast and setting up a donation. That's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. We've also got t-shirts, sweatshirts and hoodies available over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. Make sure you're following the podcast by hitting that button in your podcast app now or by heading to downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. And you can get a bit of extra downtime by signing up to our newsletter at downtimepodcast.com forward slash newsletter. All right, that's it for today. We're going to have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until next time, get out and ride. (laughs) 